the, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross some 2,000 years ago is a, is a matter that's really undisputed. It is set forth not only in Scripture, but in extra-biblical sources as well. And not only that, but just the impact in North Africa and, and uh, China and different places where the original apostles went forth testifies to the historicity of Christ and that there was certainly the historic Christ and what he did. Now, the question for us today is, though that is undisputed, that, the, that Christ was rejected by the Jews, executed by the Romans, that is not really an issue to be disputed. But the question for us is not so much when he died or how he died or, or where he died, but for us as believers, there's no question more important for us to ask ourselves and those of us who've asked it and answered it from Scripture over and over through the years have benefited from the exercise because there is something to be said for preaching the gospel to ourselves. And so the real question before us is why? It's a why question. Why did Christ die on the cross. And if I were asked to reduce it to a single word that would explain what he was doing on that cross and why, it would be the word substitution. And we have now in our time so many different flavors of Christianity and so many different um, approaches to trying to reach our culture, that the gospel has been, in many ways, spun. It has been watered down. It has, been, it has become something that our, our fathers from the past in the faith would hardly recognize. If you don't have a gospel with substitution right at the heart of it, you don't have the gospel. You don't understand what the good news really is. The vicarious substitution of Christ. And so today I know that many of you know this and should regardless rejoice as we cover this theme and drill down into a passage of scripture. And you know, I was thinking, I was thinking last night as I gave some notes to Kathy to prepare for you to have up on the, on the screen in a few moments. But I was thinking of how just the intonation in someone's voice can change the whole meaning of a word. The exact same word is being used, <laughs> but it carries a whole different meaning. And I was thinking of the word O. O-H. And so were I to use that word like this if I said, oh, oh, then it would mean something. Or if I said it like this, oh, see how that changes? Just the intonation, oh, as in, oh, really? So just intonation. Today we have in our message and outline, the word O. Oh. 
But I think in the mood of the passage that we'll be looking at, I think I understand the kind of O that the Apostle Paul was using because the whole mood of the text is one that puts us in a sense of almost astonishment and wonder when we think of what Christ has done to redeem us and to make us his own. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to open it just so we can get the context of this passage. We're going to drill down into a single verse. And in many ways, I suppose it could be argued that this is the Apostle Paul's John 3.16. (laughs) Everyone knows John 3.16, and the Apostle John is famous for that rich gospel verse. But the Apostle Paul has a John 3.16 as well. Well, anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we are today, and we're going to be drilling down in a few moments into a single verse that will lead us to communion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I would like us to begin at verse 13. And I'd like you to follow with me. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 13. Paul writes, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, overmasters us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, what a passage of scripture. And I read it in the way I did so that you could get a sense of the tone. Because Paul begins it with, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God 
Paul says, if it seems as though we are so animated and set ablaze by this gospel, it is for God that we are. And so you sense right from the beginning in this context that there's a mood in this passage. We're not to read this passage like white coats with stethoscopes around our necks and, and, and uh, little pads of paper taking notes like we're in a laboratory. The Apostle Paul is beside himself with the wonder of this and that God would reconcile us to himself and that he would do it the way he did it. And I just think that he is, um, he is so exercised with this that the mood of the passage is uh, shot full of passion and heart and astonishment and wonder as Paul writes these words. Today I want to talk about the heart of the gospel. And what we're going to do in, a, in the few minutes we have before we come to the communion table is I want you to come back to verse 21. And we're going to drill down into verse 21 and unpack it a little bit. And I'm going to, out of necessity for time, I'm going to be moving quickly so there's much that could be said about this verse. But it is loaded. I'm telling you, it is loaded. And so, as we think about this verse, the first exclamatory statement that I would make and that I think Paul is making, is he is saying, oh, there's that oh. Oh, what wisdom is what he's saying. The wisdom of God that he would devise this eternal plan to redeem sinners and draw them into fellowship with Christ, cancel the debt of sin that's over them, rescue them from the wrath to come, and restore them to the living God and then put them on a trajectory for eternal glory and all that eternity has for us as it unfolds. This single verse. And so the first thing I want you to see from the verse is just the very first word, he. Now we know from the verse when it says he made him, then we know we're talking about two different individuals. One God, two individuals. And so he speaking is speaking of God the Father, the saving Father, the Father of infinite wisdom who planned this. Now, Corinth, you need to understand contextually. Corinth is only, if you were driving a car, you could drive from Athens, Greece to Corinth in just a matter of uh, probably less than an hour. And um, flowing like a river out of Athens was a river of intellectual and philosophic speculation as the, the great Greek philosophers sought to answer the ultimate questions of life. Who we are, what we are, why we're here, where we're going, the great philosophers, and this river flowed right into Corinth and had affected it. Well, what did the Apostle Paul have to say about all that so-called wisdom that flowed into Corinth and, hence, and so powerfully affected it? 
Well, if you glance back with me at 1 Corinthians 1, and you don't have to, you can just listen. But listen to what Paul says, thinking in terms of the impact of the Greek philosophers upon the city of Corinth. For the word of the cross, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And when Paul wrote that to the Corinthians, you know what they were thinking? That he was talking about that river of intellectual philosophic thought that was flowing from Athens. The Greek philosophers. And so God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside as a worthless thing. Where is the wise man and where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ, and we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so when I think about verse 21, he, God the Father, made him God the Son. When, he, when this verse begins, I'm thinking about the depth of the wisdom of God, that he would devise a plan for your redemption and mine, for our salvation, that would be so wondrous and so wisely planned that it would not only ultimately destroy, but completely set aside man's worldly speculations and the, and the, the best of intellectual philosophic thought coming out of Greece. It's amazing to me that the Father has done this in a way that in a week from now, we'll be able to take the simple message of the cross of Christ and who Christ is and present it to children and what all the Greeks, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and a hundred underneath them, all their students that were tutored by them and the, this so-called wealth of philosophic information, what they could not discover God, in his mercy and grace, is willing to give to the heart and mind of a little child. Little freckle-faced Johnny that will be here a week, a week from now, who's bouncing off the walls and pulling pigtails. But if God gets a hold of him, what a difference it will make. Yesterday I came up, no, not yesterday, day before I came upstairs, and I heard somebody and right behind this pulpit, I came around the corner, I looked, and there was a, I could only see his head, just barely up. And standing here at this pulpit was little Gabe. 
Caitlin's son, Gabe. And he was back here, and nobody was here except him and God. And you know what he was doing? He was preaching. He was up here preaching and quoting John 3.16. And I stood back there, and he didn't know I was here, and I was listening to him. And I came forward, and I said, Gabe, you know, I'm getting old. And I said, you know, we're going to need a pastor when I can't do it anymore. And I think God just might have you in mind. And he smiled and said, nah, nah. <laughs> I said, yeah, you just don't know what will happen if God gets a hold of you. Because God has chosen the small things, the weak things, to shame the wise and the strong. Hasn't he? Well, the wisdom of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The second I want you to see is not only can we this morning as we come to communion say, oh, what wisdom, our Father. But we can also say, oh, what purity. What purity, your sinless son. And so there you see in the, the opening phrase, he made him who knew no sin. You know, that's just incomprehensible for us. It really is. Uh, we just are born, we're born with a sinful nature. And though it, it's a time before we reach a, an age of, or a condition of accountability, where our conscience is kicking in and we're aware uh, of good and evil and making choices and violating our own consciences. But nevertheless, from birth on, we're born in sin, aren't we? We're born lost. We're born in need of conversion, need of the new birth, need of new life that only God can give us. And so, in this passage, it, Paul is reveling in the, what, what theologians call the impeccability of Christ. His spotless purity. And what does that mean? Well, on one hand, in the simplest form, he never did anything wrong. Right? He never did anything wrong. But let's go a little deeper. He never thought anything wrong. He never had a motive that was soiled or contaminated or in any way dishonoring to God. Can you fathom that? But stop for a minute. That's just avoiding evil. But true righteousness also involves not only avoidance of sin, which is sin of commission, but it's also the, the walking so in perfect union with God that even though there's a thousand needs around us, his walk with God was such that when there was a need to serve, a need to act, a need to be moved. He did it, and he always did it in a way that honored God the Father. So there were no sins of omission. He didn't omit anything. What a life he lived. I know what, I've commented on this before, but even the covenant of works in the Old Testament Adam and Eve were, were without sin. They were in a, in a state of innocence. 
and they had a covenant of works. But they violated that covenant, and they broke that covenant, and they disobeyed God, and they brought ruin to the whole human race because of it. But the second Adam who came, he fulfilled the covenant of works by his very life. You see, if, if Christ's life was not sinless, then it would have been no, of no value, though impaled to the cross. He took the whole of his life to the cross when he gave himself for us. The sinless son. Hebrews chapter 7 says this. It says, um, I'm sorry, I had it right here. It says, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Christ, the sinless Son. So as we come to communion and remember, we can say, Oh, Father, what wisdom. Oh, Christ, what sinless perfection. But we can also come with the humility of recognizing that there is a sense in this verse when, which we also say, oh, what ugliness. What ugliness. The sin imputed upon him. Look there at the verse again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. To be sin on our behalf. He became the personification of sin. Sin in all its forms. Sin in all of its lewd ugliness and cruel harshness. Sin is what he became. And God treated him. And by the way, let me say this. Communion service is personal. We do it corporately, but each of us respond to God personally. Why is that? Because Christ, not only think of it, <laughs> and I remember years ago, we had a professor in school, Dr. Jack Mitchell, and he was still teaching the book of Romans and the book of Acts when he was 92. And I'll never forget that particular day. He was standing in front of the class, a little bit hunched over, of course, with his Bible, and he always had a rubber band around it. And he'd pull the rubber band off, and it would just kind of fall open because it was so used. And he, he was teaching us about the, the book of Romans. And he said, you know, the older I get and the more I walk with him, the more precious it becomes to me because I'm realizing in a deeper way than ever before that Jesus Christ not only died 
for my sins. He died for me. And it was so personal as he said that, a tear streaked down his cheek and dropped off his chin as he thought about what that means, that Christ was on the cross bearing John Mitchell's sins, just like he is bearing your sin. It's personal when we come to the table. What ugliness comes upon Christ when he bears the sin of the world. Randy Alcorn wrote these words. He said, he was hounded by Pharisees, betrayed by a friend, forsaken by his disciples, brutalized by police, beaten by his inquisitors, led in disgrace to a rigged trial. Arrogant men sitting in judgment over him, crowning him with thorns, mocking and disdaining, beating him without mercy, nailing him to a cross, and worst of tortures stretched out between two thieves. Miserably thirsty, utterly forsaken by his father for the first time, the picture of complete aloneness. Hell on earth. Not just one man's hell, but the hell of billions for whom he died. At any moment, in a millisecond, he could have called legions of angels to deliver him and destroy his enemies, but instead, he bears forever the scars of sin, rebellion, mockery, and hatred, the scars of the grace of God. Sometime back, that notion struck me. I hadn't thought of it before. But when this old world passes away, and we're told in Second Peter, since all these things are to be dissolved, what kind of persons ought we to be in holiness and godliness? So it's all going to pass away. And then we'll have the eternal state, and there in all of glory, as far as I know, there will only be one evidence of the remnants of this sinful world. Even we will have brand new bodies, glorified bodies. I'm assuming without flaw. But there's one in heaven who's represented over and over in the book of Revelation as the Lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the earth. And he bears in his body the scars. Chapter 5 says, I saw a lamb as if slain before the throne of God. So all there is really of this old fallen world that will be left in glory as a reminder will be the scars that he bears that it cost him to redeem you and me. Well, let, let's hurry on. So we have, oh, what wisdom. Oh, what purity. Oh, what ugliness. And oh, what a change. Oh, what a change. Look there. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. And the phrase that caught me is that we might become. And in the context, of course, I think when it comes to this particular verse, the primary interpretation is that the change is a complete change in status, a change in position, no longer in Adam, but now in Christ, secure. Now we are in union with him, and that's how God sees us, a transfer, like Colossians 1 says, giving thanks to the Father who has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so there's this change that happens in position, no longer children of wrath, but now children of grace and mercy. But there's more. Because even the context here in verse 17, it's not only a change of position, but it's a change in personhood. You actually change from who you once were. And according to verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. A new personhood is given in the new birth. You become deep within somebody that you never were before. Alive in Christ. Oh, what a change. And then lastly, before we come to communion, oh, what perfection. Let's read the verse one more time. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's just unfathomable to me. I understand it. I believe it. I get it. I get it that that was the cry of the reformers justification by faith, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. I get that. I understand that. But what does it mean personally? If you're a saved person, if you put your trust in Christ and you've come to know him and your sin has been forgiven and you've been made a new creation by the miracle of new birth, you know what? Were we to ask, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, oh, Father, Show us, would you? Show us the righteousness of God. And you know what he could do? He could take you up in his hand and say, would you like to see my righteousness? It's right here. Her name's Sally. His name's Dave. His name's Dell. Her name is Marianne. That's my righteousness. Do you see what this is saying? God is saying, when I... When I went to put on the ultimate demonstration and display of my infinite, uncreated, eternal righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, I chose you to put in my display case. There is only one righteousness in all the universe and beyond, only his righteousness, and you either have it or you don't. And how do you get that righteousness? Well, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why did he do this? The why of the gospel. 
is that he might take children of wrath, children of rebellion, and make them children of grace and children who are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Second Corinthians 8, 9. You remember what it says? For you know, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Rich with what? Rich in righteousness. The perfect righteousness of Christ, which will enable you to stand one day before his uncreated blaze of holiness and purity and stand there without being scorched into oblivion. The righteousness of Christ. So when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't just meaning, remember that it's a historic fact, or do this remembering where it happened, or that it happened, or how it happened. No, he was saying, remember why. Remember why I did this for you. That you might be made the righteousness of God in him. Pastor went to visit a little old a little old widow lady. She lived out on a farm and her husband had died a number of years before. And she was just a hard-working, salt-of-the-earth farm wife. And the pastor went out to visit her and he'd never met her and he got to visiting and talking. And when he came around to the gospel, he said, uh, so do you have any faith in, in the Lord? What is your background? And, you know, he was trying to break the ice and be able to share Christ with her. And she said, oh, yes, I, Pastor, I, I believe the gospel. I love the gospel. And he said, oh, really? Well, what does the gospel mean to you? And she said this. It means that he who knew no sin gave himself for me who knew no righteousness so that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now that was her paraphrase. Pretty accurate though, wasn't it? The heart of the gospel. She understood substitution, didn't she? She didn't say to him, oh well, I've, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to be an honest person. I've tried to, that my good would outweigh my bad. There was no discussion of her morality, no discussion of whether she felt she deserved anything. No. As soon as he asked her, she went directly to him who knew no sin, who gave himself for me. Substitution. If you got substitution, you got the gospel. You got the gospel. 